Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chaffers. Today, I'm talking to an old friend who's been on the show a couple of times before. My name is Jess Fonzo. I am a professor at Johns Hopkins University, and I work on food policy issues. Uh, more so, have done a lot of work on sustainable diets in low-income countries. And now, Jess Fanzo has drawn on more than 20 years' experience in low-income countries and her work on food systems to write a book. It's called Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet? And it comes out in about a month. The book takes a close look at food systems around the world. You may well have heard a lot about food systems in recent months. They're broken. No, they're not. They're evil. No, they're not. You may even be wondering what a food system even is. Well, I'm not going to attempt a definition. In her book, Jess Fanzo says food systems are, quote, everything involving food from farm to fork, end quote. And that works as long as we agree that farm means any place food comes from and that forks are optional. I suppose the pandemic had something to do with it. But when I spoke to Jess a couple of days ago, I wondered, why now? I think it's just a great time to be thinking about all of these issues around our food system, climate change, impacts on the environment. And the time is right. There's a lot of attention now on climate, a lot of attention on the impacts of what we eat on, on human health and the planet. So after, you know, 20 plus years of working and lots of gray hairs, I just felt it would be fun to kind of put my thoughts down on paper. I've never been a comfortable writer. So it was, it was, it was a little bit painful. And you don't really want to write about yourself or your experiences or what you've witnessed, but it definitely makes for a more interesting book when you can. So. Sure. I, I love the title because, of course, you know, fixing dinner is nicely ambiguous. You, you can fix dinner in the sense of making it and you can fix it in the sense of making it better. But how much does the planet actually need fixing? Pretty significantly. When we think of, of food, uh, food is contributing about 30% of, of total greenhouse gas emissions, which is huge. And uh, a contributor that is largely ignored in the Paris Agreement and COP and other climate talks, everyone focuses on energy and transportation, but food is not really emphasized, but it is a it is emitting a significant amount of greenhouse gases because of the way we grow our food and moving food around the world and the kind of foods we grow and harvest and raise. And then, you know, of course, we're seeing significant impacts on natural resources that are finite, significant deforestation and biodiverse hotspots. Our oceans are in peril. It's not a great picture jeremy right it's it's when you start to read the stats it's downright scary and and are these really planetary global problems definitely everyone 
is and will continue to be affected if we don't do anything about it. This idea that the poor will suffer disproportionately is true, but there will be points where we will all feel the effects of climate change, and we already are starting to see that. It's interesting um, because you draw a comparison between Timor-Leste in, in Southeast Asia and, and Baltimore, Maryland, um, two places I know you know well, but in what ways are they really similar? Similar in uh, issues around continued poverty, conflict, conflict, but from different ways, um, marginalized populations, populations that have been undervalued and disadvantaged in the system. And of course, that has impacts on people's ability to access diets, healthy diets, people's ability to participate in food systems and, and other, every other system, health education system. So while you know, very different starting points and in very different places in the world, some of those rooted issues around poverty, marginalization, conflict hold true in both places. And so there's some really interesting parallels. And as Timor gets more urban, and it will, and it is, you know, they're, gonna, they're going to experience some of the same things some of the cities in the United States have, have dealt with, with, with pockets of poverty. And You do say very clearly um, in the book, you say food is not a cause of iniquities. Um, rather, food inequities are a symptom of larger systemic issues. So does that mean that the solutions will be the same everywhere or will the solutions for Timor and Baltimore be very different? That's a really good question. I mean, I think at the root of it, we need to fix a lot of the injustices in the system. Now, depending on who you are, the color of your skin, your ethnicity, your caste, in every society, there are those who are being left behind, sometimes purposefully. Those are the kind of issues that resonate wherever you go. But layered on top of that, the, the localized context of food systems will be shaped and changed depending on where you are because food systems are so different around the world. They're connected, but they're different. So to me, some of the systemic issues that we need to deal with are quite similar. We all have that in common, in a sense, these injustices that we see around the world. But the solutions across food systems and health systems could vary depending on where you are. Mm. Mm. But there are some things, Jeremy, like access to a healthy diet. That's the same problem everywhere. Now, what is the composition of that healthy diet? And what's the terrain to get healthy diets to different people could change. So there are some similar underlying issues with food systems, but what it looks like, the actions and solutions that need to be taken will be very context dependent. Um, the book's actually chock-a-block with, with interesting examples of the way diet's changing. And one that struck me is you, you talk about Nepal where instant noodles are, are replacing a more traditional rice and, and lentil soup. 
And the instant noodles are great. They save time for women. The kids love them. What, what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, they're not a healthy option. Um, you know, instant noodles are a deep fried, highly processed packaged food. Um, the little salt packets is what everybody loves are really high in sodium, you know, beyond your quota, quota of sodium that you need every day. And if, you know, and they're not really, uh, rich in nutrients. Now one could argue, well, why not just add some veggies and an egg to those ramen? And they're pretty good, right? I mean, I like ramen noodles too, Jeremy, and they are really convenient and easy, but you know, we don't want the world to just be eating ramen noodles. We want the, you know, we want to see the diversity of the food basket. We want people to hang on to those traditions as much as they can. The Nepalese eat the rice and lentils, the dalbat, and it's so healthy. It's got a lot of fiber. It's got a lot of iron. They're they're missing that, but there there is a trade off there. Dalbat takes a long time to cook. For many women that are cooking dalbat every day, that is incredibly time consuming. So we're really dealing with trade off issues around taste and convenience. Um, you know, to and replacing some of those traditional foods. So, how can we have foods that are tasty, convenient, uh, and healthy? That's the question. So maybe dalbat will go away in Nepal, but replacing it with junk food is is just you know you put your head in your hands because we've seen that happen in the United States you know over centuries and you just don't want Nepal to fall into the same trap as what happened in the United States where a significant proportion of our diet is made up of these highly processed foods that are quite detrimental for health. Mm. But but that that raises the question of the role of government in food policy and as you say I mean Rich, rich countries don't seem to be much better at it than poor countries. In fact, they may be worse because mm. um, the influences on government in rich countries is probably greater than the influence in poor countries. I don't know about that. But what, what is the role of government in setting food policy? What are the sorts of things they can, they can do that are liable to work? I, I mean, to me, the first thing is that governments need to have a role. <laughs> They're too laissez-faire about the food system. They're not governing and shepherding, shepherding their food systems at all. You know, if you go to the United States, multinationals are feeding us, multinational companies, and that can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. And, and when we look at the public health that... Uh, we have now, multinationals have really prioritized profit over public health and environmental goals, and that's problematic. So leaving the private sector to sort of do what they want without public health goals in mind is not a good situation. So governments need to step up. One of the first things they can do is have an actual food systems policy no country, Jeremy, has a holistic food systems policy. Now, they'll have an ag subsidy policy. They've got dietary guidelines that no one reads. But no one sort of brings it all together into a holistic policy. Mm. And then from there, if you've got a strong policy, you can then govern 
the actors in the food system. Regulation, if you need to, at times. But it's it's a place to hold actors accountable. And governments just... They don't either have the opportunity, the resources, the capacity to do that. Hmm. I, I, I'll come back in a, in a bit to how governments might move forward. But can, can we talk about meat and, and animal source products for, for a bit? Because you were part of the Eat Lancet Commission, which came down pretty heavily against meat <laughs> and livestock because they are so damaging to the environment. And a lot of people pointed out, I mean, the pushback, that for the very poorest people, a little bit of meat, some milk, maybe some eggs, can make a huge difference to their health. And it, it wasn't that sensitive of the Eat Lancet Commission to say people should give up meat when so many people don't actually get much in the way of meat. So, so what's your position on that now? Yeah, so the Eat Lancet Commission, the, as you had said, the planetary reference diet was, was very low in animal source foods across the board. That's not only cows, so red meat, but eggs, dairy, everything. Um, and when I sat on that Eat Lancet Commission, you, we always have to make, you have to make concessions when you sit on these. And, but I, at the end of the day, I put my name to that commission. Um, do I regret it now? <laughs> no, I don't know if I regret it. But I do think there's nuance in that meat conversation. You know, the, the devil's in the details and that. There's some populations that can really come down in their meat consumption. Whether or not they're willing to is a whole other conversation. But, you know, in the United States, in Brazil, do we need to eat meat at every meal? Maybe not. Whereas in other countries, like you said, they just can't get access to it. It's completely unaffordable. A lot of these foods are perishable. They're not traded. Um so not only are they not available, but they're not affordable. So to me, some countries need to make bigger steps than others. And when you look at the details of the Eat Lancet, places like Sub-Saharan Africa, they're under the amount recommended for animal source foods. Whereas in the United States, you know, we're consuming six times more red meat than we need to. So when you really start to look at some of the details of the Eat Lancet, you see these inequities and who gets access to what. So I would love to do like a part two of the Eat Lancet where we look much more deeply at the low-income context and what it would mean. Like, should Ethiopia increase their livestock sector? They're aiming to do it. If so, how do they do it? Stay you know, somewhat environmentally sensitive increase animal source foods for the populations that need. And at the same time, how would high-income countries start to come down, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you say in the book, you say you've got the stats that the average Bangladeshi eats three kilograms of meat per person per year, and the average person in the United States eats 124 kilograms. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? Well, but, and yet, and yet, um, certain tribes, I want to call them in the U.S., are screaming blue murder because they can't eat 
bloody red stakes, morning, night, and noon. And the whole thing has become such an element of identity politics and, and, and Absolutely. Uh, freedom, quote-unquote. These are, you know, you're not dealing with nutrition anymore. You're not dealing with health anymore. How do you even begin to tackle that kind of attitude? Yeah, when you start to get into telling people what they potentially can, should restrict in their diets or taxing certain foods, you quickly get into people's self-liberties. You know, don't tell me what to eat. Don't govern my food. And I've, it's almost taking the right to food to the next degree, right? And this is what makes food and working in it so interesting is because everyone starts to take it incredibly personally. And, you know, we don't have, if you, if, if it's just, it's just such, it's, it's in a, such a different category when you start to govern food. But if you don't at least provide some regulation and more guidance and for governments to do that, um, it leaves people having to shoulder decisions in a very perverse environment. I mean, food environments, the places where you and I go to shop and order food, they're tricky places to make decisions in. They're very, they're very perverse where food is placed, the price, what's on sale, the branding, the advertising, a lot of it subliminally. And these are really tough things to navigate. And a lot of it gets very politicized if you start to regulate that space. Yeah. Like taxing, taxing foods. Um, but it's the state we're in. And I think it's 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 at least providing consumers with with as much transparent information as you can give them. And I think. When you talk about health of food, that resonates a lot more than environment, at least a lot of Americans because people care about their health. They care about dying. <laughs> dying scares the hell out of people. So are there ways to uh, promote healthy foods, but that have win-wins for the environment that consumers, you know, just it's in the background. I just don't don't know as much about. But it's interesting because your, your first chapter is called Are We What We Eat or What We're Fed? And I think a lot of people don't realize the extent to which what they eat is what they're fed if you see what I mean yeah no absolutely I mean I think about I was discussing this with my husband some of the jingles that run through your head are from food advertisements when we were young Jeremy like these things like stick in your head it's incredible um you know, I just think about some of these like commercials that we had. It's, it's incredible how um, how deep the marketing runs, and and how influential it is on your life. And you know, here I am, almost fifty years old, and I still remember like McDonald's jingles from when I was ten. Why is that? Right? What happened? So I mean, talk about being programmed. <laughs> But you said you said earlier that you know the business of of food corporations is to make a profit, and so they're willing to invest. 
huge amounts of money into improving their profits. And that goes for engineering the food itself, as well as persuading you that, you know, worming their way into your brain. Yeah. But I think, you know, is there a way for private sector to use all their tools, all their skills, which they have a lot of, and all the information that they know what drives consumer decision-making to make healthy, tasty, convenient food. That's their challenge. There, many of the private sector actors, which is a big group of people from very multinationals to small, smallholder woman farmer, a lot of the private sector is incredibly concerned about the environment and climate change because it's they see it's going to affect their bottom line, their ability to produce raw goods, their ability to move food around the world. I mean, they are deeply worried about that. I want them to be just as worried about the health of their future consumer. So where can they have that sweet spot, that win-win-win, where they're making profit, they're being environmentally sustainable, and they're producing healthy, tasty foods that the world wants? That's their challenge. They've got the technology to probably do that. And there's, start, there's companies that are starting to do that, like they're trying to, to reformulate their foods, which is difficult to do. Removing salt and, and sugar from food is hard. Um, it's tough to reformulate foods. So how can they move in that direction more? So we have to figure out ways for governments to incentivize them to do that. So, so then who, whose responsibility is it to to fix dinner and and is that the same who is that different from who needs to fix the planet same i mean it's it's everybody right of course we need governments we need private sector to come in provide us healthy foods ensure that they're treading lightly on the planet and be thinking about protecting the planet for future generations but we as individuals also can play a role every day and it can be small changes. The individuals can do lots of little things like, like wasting less food, like making better dietary choices, like supporting local farmers. You know, there's so many everyday things you as the individual can do that fit within your lifestyle but can help your own health, help your family's health, help the planet. It's and, and yeah, there, there's so many different resources out there to help guide you do that. One final point. Um, coming up soon in a couple of months is going to be this UN summit on food systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm generally very pessimistic and very cynical about global summits of this, that and the other. Um, you're less so, I think. So what's... What what should I be looking forward to in the Food System Summit? Um, what's the good it could be doing? So um, I think it's the, the, the reason why I'm excited about it is because it's really the first time the UN and the Secretary General has called attention to food, which for those of us who've worked in food, it's very exciting to actually have food in the spotlight at such a grand scale. What I were okay in saying that, I think there's a lot of 
really great stuff going on leading up to the summit. So there's a science group, there are these action tracks where they're coming up with potential solutions that governments can take up. There's a lot of dialogue. So it's a great moment to be working in food. It's almost a little bit too much. That said, I'm a bit worried, Jeremy, of a couple of things. Number one is what comes after. And I think that's what you're getting at. All right. So all the governments meet in New York to discuss food. What's going to come out of that? Is it going to be like COP, like the Paris Agreement, where they've all agreed to this global goal? No, it's not. It doesn't have the stature of that. So will everyone come together and sing Kumbaya and say, this is great, food's important, and everyone goes home and then nothing happens? I don't know. And to me, the summit hasn't been so clear on the after. You know, I've heard even things like, what matters is the before and everything that's happening. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. We can dialogue and talk to each other and have webinars and yeah, sure, that's great. We make great connections within each other, but that's not what's that's not is what's going to change the food system overall. So to me, it's is there an accountability mechanism to track any commitments made at the summit? How do we hold them to account? Or are we just going to fall back on the SDGs, which have no accountability mechanism to them, like the MDGs? You know, we didn't achieve all the MDGs. Okay, well, let's start a whole new set of global goals and double them. So that's what I worry about. The other thing I worry about is the inclusivity. There's, I'm sure you've been reading, there's a lot of different groups who are just disengaging with, with the summit because of lack of inclusion, because there's not a human rights lens emphasized in the summit. We're seeing a lot of civil society completely backing away from the summit. And that is unfortunate. People are worried about the private sector engagement of the summit because there's a lot of power asymmetries. If we don't have civil society sitting at that table, the people who engage with communities, farmers, indigenous peoples, that is incredibly problematic to me because that's what matters. That's what we care about. We care about people and their relationship with nature and it's not the secretary general who is is producing our food. So how do we engage those populations in the summit? If they're not there, it's a it's going to be really difficult to get any momentum in communities around the world to advocate for a better food system. That's my worry. Jess Fanzo and her book and Fixing Dinner, Fix the Planet will be published on the 22nd of June by Johns Hopkins University Press. If you're looking for a very readable guide to the complexities of food systems, look no further. And if you're wondering how the global food system got into the state it's in, in the next episode, I'll be talking to Chris Otter, a historian, about his book, Diet for a Large Planet, subtitled Industrial Britain, food systems, and world ecology. As for the UN Food Systems Summit, I'm not sure I'll pay that much attention to it. If you're interested, plenty of other people will be, and so I'll leave it to them. 
My thanks again to Jess Fanzo for what I thought was a really interesting chat, and there'll be more information in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And of course, I'd love to know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at eatpodcast and Instagram, eatthispodcast, or use good old-fashioned email to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. For now, though, till the next time on Diet for a Large Planet, from me, Jeremy Chirpus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening. 